0: Welcome to Fret Knots with me, Rosie Bennett. Fret Knot is a podcast that aims to demystify the learning process that we go through in our lives, work, and otherwise. I'll be talking to the champions in our fields and help us work out how we can learn from what they've already figured out. Nothing in life is a linear process. So let's get more at ease with the ups and the downs and realize that wherever we are in our journey, we really aren't alone. This podcast is brought to you by Augustine Strings, my string of choice and one of my favourite companies for my favourite people in the guitar world. You can check them out on AugustineStrings.com In today's episode I talk to Laura Snowden, internationally acclaimed British-French guitarist, composer and longtime friend of mine. Laura was born in the UK and grew up with the sounds of the Irish tenor banjo played by her father. She attended the Yehudi Menuhin School of Music, the Royal College in London, and studied for many years with Julian Bream. Her solo career has seen her tour the world, play multiple premieres of new works, release an album with her folk group, Tirolas, and her compositions have led to commissions from the International Guitar Foundation and Birmingham Symphony Hall. Laura, you recently collaborated with Gold from the Stone Foundation to raise money for Care Leavers, um, you made some Christmas arrangements and I wondered, uh, how did that come about?
1: She calls herself on YouTube Careleaver Sophia. Sophia, mm. um, but her full name is Sophia Alexandra Hall. She's a really, really interesting person. I met her just very briefly through the music world when I was at college because I was playing a piece that she'd written when she was at the junior department. And on her channel on YouTube, she did these really interesting videos about her experiences as a care uh, so It's like yeah, I just kind of came into my awareness of, oh, what is... It to be in care, all the different types of situations that that could involve, because it's such a broad spectrum of experiences, and no two experiences are the same. And then um, I started. I think I listened to a couple of interviews with her. She has a really interesting podcast. It's called "Who Cares About Research," and she talks about how she went to this conference. I think it was. I don't. I don't remember the details, but and they were quoting. Um, statistics about what percentage of people who've been in care go to university and um, the statistics were really different from what she'd been told when she was leaving uh, school so she was like oh okay well I guess there's been some new research then but then she realized that no the research was around when she was at school but people were just using super outdated research it's actually kind of quite paralleled with other things I really hit a nerve with me because I was thinking there's so much in music relating to music, mental health, but also music, um, physical health and sort of use of the body and all sorts of things where people are using methods and research that's kind of quite outdated. And a lot of research is hidden behind paywalls or maybe just very difficult to understand. And because I've worked with lots of children in lots of different situations, I've had this urge to raise money for that charity that was providing uh activities and food and gifts and things for young care leavers at christmas um obviously all online this year but it's not so much about the gifts and the things you get but more just the feeling of being valued and so it
0: was all because of that that was the longest ramble i've ever heard (laughs) (laughs) No, but it is actually so interesting. There's a couple of things I find really interesting about collaborations like that. And one of those things is, as you said, this this idea that there are these vulnerable sections of society that so often go unnoticed and unheard. I definitely think that there are a lot of parallels with uh, that and with musicians, especially young musicians, in a sense, not really having... Any idea of what's going to happen to you once you leave the system that you're in does already have some parallels, obviously not to the same degree, but does have some parallels to Mm. music education, um, maybe especially classical education. I wondered maybe if some part of making these collaborations is to have a feeling that you can give back in a tangible way that we otherwise can't necessarily access from the concert stage um, and especially not at the moment.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. I think part of it was also just there was the aspect that I was making arrangements. They were deliberately made to be not particularly difficult. I mean, they were about grade three to six ish. Um, I often feel most um, moved and most excited by just seeing children or adult amateurs who just love playing and get something out of it, something constructive, some kind of meaning in their lives. That's kind of where a lot of the most beautiful experiences in my life have
0: come from and where
1: a lot of meaning is, I think.
0: What would you feel has been the most meaningful or most important lesson that you've either learnt or unlearnt?
1: I had to think about this quite a lot because I was trying to think of something that was quite general and that is quite ongoing Um, So it's not necessarily something that I feel like, oh, I've learned it and now I'm done, but more just maybe the most important thing um, in general. And I feel like I'd probably say I'm not quite sure how to phrase it, but it's learning to be more artistically vulnerable and authentic and open. Even just things like how I'm interacting with audiences, the music I'm writing, the kind of projects I'm choosing to do, the repertoire I'm playing. For me, I had this real aha moment when I saw Pavel Steidl play. I can't remember how long ago, maybe five, six years ago in London. And it was just such a kind of connected concert. It felt like he was so authentic. It was so genuine even down to just the details of how he was talking to the audience, the things he was saying that were very just anecdotal and playful and truthful. Um, And I really, I was like, oh, wow, you could do that.
0: Yeah, he Uh, is really an interesting performer in that respect, because I feel like the audience so believes in him, even from the moment that he walks on stage. With a lot of performers, it feels as though the conversation that they have with you on stage is so different to when they start to play. I think it's very difficult coming from an education background where you're so sort of introduced to the etiquettes of performing quite young. I know that at Menuhin School they definitely had an etiquette for what kind of things you should say before you start playing. Um, But I actually wondered about your first concerts and whether you felt that you, if you had more of that connection before you went to in school or if it was something that you really came to later?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question because, you know, when I was younger, I'm sure I've told you this, but um, I wanted to be an actor. That's what mm. I was really passionate about. Um, yeah. I just happened to unfortunately be really bad at acting. Um, <laughs> other than that, it was a marvellous plan. Um, <laughs> and I did, I loved the audience. And I I loved the idea that you one could control um, the the audience's kind of journey and emotion and the like the timing sort of making them wait here and then get excited here and the energy. Um, mm. And I, I just felt really excited by the idea of performing. I thought that was the coolest thing and I really wanted to be. I knew I wanted to be involved in the arts. I wanted to be a creative person. And I also felt, oh, I really want to be a performer. I remember also I saw this guitarist called Simon Dinigan, um, mm-hmm. who was one of my favorite guitarists when I was growing up. I, I, I don't think he's still really playing anymore, but he used to just he'd go to churches in just sort of various towns in England, put up a poster being like Simon Dinigan is playing here. And that I think I have a couple of other friends who also knew him when they were younger just from that I think you just see his name around and then you'd go to the concert and um he had a really nice stage manner that was really um sort of just very comforting and friendly and warm and I think I tried to copy that a little bit um mm. so yeah I did feel that and then at the school I feel like I was encouraged to formalize it a lot more um mm. and then I think the thing that really changed everything was um with the band my folk group Tirolis because we used to play in quite informal settings because we were with live music now for a while which does concert performances in community settings so you might be in um, a hospice or a school for children with special needs or a center for refugees or um, a place for um, people who um, are living with dementia could be all sorts of different um, settings and Mm. so just the way of communicating and engaging was a lot more casual and a lot more playful and also I was seeing other artists um, because say if you're playing in a kind of folk night or a uh singer songwriter night or something and then you see lots of different people and the presentation would tend to be more anecdotal maybe relating to things like what happened to you on the way to the gig or uh, why Mm. you wrote this song Um, And a bit more responsive to things that happen maybe in the moment, like something happens in the audience and you respond to it and just a lot more casual, really. And I think very gradually I started trying to bring that in, this idea of trying to acknowledge the time and space that you're in. Mm. I don't mean saying like, oh, I'm in a church, but more (laughs) that something in the way that you're speaking is like this, this is acknowledging this moment. This couldn't Mm. be what I said yesterday or what I'm saying tomorrow. But it's an acknowledgement of now. And that's why it it can also be funny to do banter about things that happened on the way to the gig. But as well as being (laughs) funny, it makes it feel to me like we know that we're here right now. This is our moment.
0: That's really interesting, because when I think of your work as a composer, you really feel that the audience is so under the impression Of the atmosphere that you're creating and it's it's quite uh, amazing to see how using the guitar but also using the voice can sort of create something on stage that extends the parameters of what the guitar can do Um, I think it's amazing to have this sound coming from uh, the human (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, where you sort of can't pick up on it immediately but you sort of feel that there's something growing, a different kind of energy on the stage than there otherwise would be. You're sort of so used to as a guitar audience listening to the notes uh, being played and then, and then dying. So it really makes it feel like there's something living on the stage, which is part of what I find so beautiful about the way that you perform and the way that you integrate your own pieces into your performances. I remember how crazy Fred was about about your piece, as, like it was something that was going to be here. And actually, that is a really interesting idea. The, uh, you know, um, he was so, don't want to say obsessed, but he was so keen to record it on that day. And I think <laughs> yeah. that sort of temporality, the idea that things are so different from day to day and space to space, and it's so interesting that that music could transmit that sort of feeling to someone the urgency of of trying to um, secure something in the impermanence of uh, music which obviously is is here and gone and you know the present is a very slippery term
1: I think I do like the feeling of being able to not manipulate time because that's obviously not <laughs> that that kind of feeling of um, <laughs> of sort of being in control of uh, of an energy and of a timing at that time. Mm. I like that. Um, But I do also like the fact when with composing that when you've finished a piece, then you have the piece.
0: Do you feel that maybe the way that you came into composition helped you to feel like you could be more authentic from the get-go?
1: I think that probably has something to do with it. I think I just also have never had any composition teacher with particularly strong opinions (laughs) so Mm -hmm. I've been just a bit left to my own devices a bit more Um, but to be honest I think part of it has to be just the fact that going on the stage is just so horrendous in some ways (laughs) I mean it's it it can be brilliant but it it, it's the it's so different because that's a moment where you have to deliver and your body can start freaking out doing all this weird stuff because of, um, you know, your fight-flight response and do all these unexpected things that you didn't think it was going to do. Um, Mm. And that can therefore give you quite stressful or weird experiences on stage um, that sometimes you're not completely in control of, I guess. Whereas Mm. when you're composing you're I feel like you've got a bit more time to control it you could be in a bit of a funny mood and then you can just think oh well I'll I'll write that piece a bit later then so it's a bit easier to be authentic maybe uh, because of that too so I think it's probably a bit of a mixture
0: so what is the lesson that you would like to impart well
1: I was thinking for this one your
0: choice of words
1: and kind of how you communicate things um, as well as what you're communicating. Um, I realised the irony of me saying this while speaking very ineloquently on a podcast. (laughs) I think I just, I I never used to appreciate as much how important it was to choose your words carefully or at least try to and try to be mindful. And that was something that I really picked up um, from Julian a lot because I really noticed The difference in language um, between saying, for example, when you play this, you should do this or you must do this. Or what Julian would say, which was always, if I were you, I would or well now here, what I would do is. And that really does make a difference, I think, because then you're just saying this is what I would do, not you must. Everything that Julian said in his teaching he always gave a reason why um, and that was even down to the very small things um, so any musical detail he would give a really compelling and interesting reason and I just love that so much because that, that means that you might not even remember then whatever the external manifestation of the idea was if it was like move on here or then wait here but you remember the reason and that's actually the interesting bit so it can end up that you don't even play the thing in the way that he suggested at all but at least the reason was interesting and you can think about that and understand that and that might inform your own interpretations and a lot of the language around that how classical music is set up I find can be a little bit misleading because when people say things like it's not about you it's about the composer or it's not about you it's about the music of Mm. course I completely understand that if you think what does that really mean it kind of means when you're saying it's not about the composer either particularly it's not about like what they liked having for breakfast it's about the character the the energy the feeling of it I think when I consume art I don't think that's quite the right terminology but if I listen to a piece of music or read a book or watch a tv program i like it when it feels really personal and if i feel like the person who wrote it or the person who's acting it is bringing their whole self into it and pouring that out into me that's what speaks to me because we pick up i suppose on other people's personal and their intimate experiences Mm -hmm. um but I've often felt like I'm not allowed to be too personal, maybe because of the way that classical music works. I guess generally you play music by other people. I remember, you know, Jonathan Leithwood, the guitarist. So he had a really nice thing that he had learned from one of his teachers. That person had said, Bach didn't give us music so that we can be Bach. He gave us his music so that we can be ourselves. That really kind of makes sense to me. I understand that. Whereas I think a lot of I, I don't want to be too black and white about this, because I think depending on how you understand it and what you associate with the different words, you could get a different impression. But um, for me, when people say sort of it's not about you, it's about the composer or the composer's intentions and all that stuff, it just doesn't quite mean something to me. It's, I get what they mean, but it doesn't quite work for me. Um, because I don't believe that for me to actually properly express the music and to really do something with it and engage with it, I actually have to engage with it on a really intensely, deeply personal level. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And I think for a long time, I thought I had to be this kind of empty vessel. Her music just flows through me. I understand that that's how it can look like. And maybe for some people, that's a really helpful image. Maybe that helps them to communicate and to feel more free. But for me, I have a very up and down relationship with that because it makes me feel like I'm being bashed and like I'm being
0: silenced. Yeah, it is really funny because I feel like it's almost a trend in classical music that there's this issue of ownership almost. And obviously, you see quite a lot of hypocrisy in um, the idea of talent and having something that's innate and bringing that to your performance. And then on the flip side, also having to sort of take as many steps away from being a part of your performance as possible. Um, Mm. And it's strange that that exists in the same world.
1: Yeah, it is. I think that's really true, because often that kind of approach or that language has given me the impression that It doesn't need to be me. It could be anybody. It doesn't matter. Mm. I'm just like a robot. I'm just a vehicle for it. People have to be made to feel like, no, this is you. This has to be you. There's a reason why this is your interpretation and why you're playing it. Otherwise,
0: it doesn't make sense otherwise. But also, that sort of... Um, opinion or that sort of feeling that you have to indeed be this empty vessel, but at the same time be this overflowing emotional person. It also affects the way that you see other people as well, the pieces that you play, the music that you like. And I wondered if you had the feeling that your taste has changed over time and over this um, sort of journey with yourself. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I think I've certainly gone through
1: periods of trying to like things that I don't Really instinctively like because I feel that those are the things you're supposed to like. So I Mm. think if you go through um, music education, that can happen because I'm sure it probably happens whichever discipline you study. Maybe if you were studying jazz or um, another genre of music, I'm sure the same would happen. But there's sort of certain composers or certain pieces that are mostly considered really good and it's seen as really terrible if you don't like them and then there's others um that are maybe seen as second rate and you're a bit strange and you don't have very good taste if you like that um and i've i think recently i've just been trying to really let go of a lot of that and to identify what really makes my heart sing, even though I know your tastes can change with time in a sort of natural way. And sometimes there's something that you really don't like and then it grows on you and you kind of get it. So it's not about not being interested in learning new stuff or not respecting what other people do, but just about that. I don't particularly feel like forcing myself to pretend that I like things that I do not like at that particular moment. (laughs)
0: I do feel like when the topic of taste comes up, often people link um, poor taste to things that are um, in the mainstream. So things that are usually quite popular, those tend to be the things that people deem not really tasteful. And it is interesting how in classical music that's sort of reversed.
1: Yeah, because I suppose there's the greatest hits and yeah <laughs> they're the ones that you're supposed to really like it's so funny because i've been listening there's a couple of podcasts actually that i've been listening to recently that have really changed my thoughts on all this or helped them to change mm. um one of them is called classical fix and um people that interviewed a bit they're people who aren't classical musicians or Often they're not musicians at all, so it could be comedians or actors or whatever. And they're given a playlist of pieces that they've never heard, classical pieces, and they just have to say what they thought of them. And it's so refreshing and delightful because it's just often their perspective is so different from the one that you feel that you're supposed to have. Sometimes they love it, sometimes they don't, but the reasons are often maybe something to do with their own lives or like they associate that type of music with this type of behavior therefore they don't like it or with this uh type of experience or this bad memory or this good memory um it's just something that i think was really missing from my understanding Mm. you know maybe 10
0: years ago or so do you feel like that sense of communication and expression and having this sort of personal experience with your musical taste is something that you try to impart on your students?
1: Definitely, it's something that I try to be conscious of, yeah, and um, that's what I aim towards. I think it's really tricky because everybody has their blind spots, I guess. I'd love to say that I was 100% open-minded in every way, but I don't think anybody really is, so I try to be as much as I can. It's really hard to just be completely open and impartial, but I'm not sure if there's really such thing because of the fact that it's also subjective. So perhaps just having the awareness that it's subjective and sort of understanding that, yeah, this is what I think. You might think something else. Is that maybe that's the best we can do? Is just at least have a dialogue around it and an awareness.
0: So what's a lesson that's currently in progress for you? What are you looking to learn in the next years?
1: Because uh, I'm hypermobile, which is like a fancy way of saying double jointed, it can be not a problem at all. Some people don't have any issues with it and have no symptoms. And then on the other end of the spectrum, some people might have really quite bad pain and frequent dislocations and I'm somewhere in the middle. So I've always had a bit of random aches and pains in my body and kind of not quite known why. But then a couple of years ago, my legs were going really bad um, and I was getting quite a lot of pain just from walking and having problems with walking short distances. Mm. Um, and the doctor sort of worked out that it was probably linked to the hypermobility. So I started having physio from the NHS and it's actually been really good because there's a couple of staff members there who seem to be very clued up on hypermobility and they gave me exercises that I had to practice. I remember when they gave them to me and they said, Oh, with hypermobility, it takes longer to build the strength. So I can't remember what the numbers were, but it was like if if normal strength takes six to eight weeks or something, then for hypermobility it's double that or something like that. I don't remember the exact amounts. But I still kind of thought, oh okay, I've got to get to 20 repetitions. So probably that will take right, maybe three weeks. And then I was like, oh, okay, maybe not three weeks, like three months. Um, and then it actually ended up taking over a year just to reach 20 repetitions of these really simple exercises. I remember in the beginning I was like, oh, okay, I'll go, I'll do like 10 to begin with and build it up or something or five to begin with. And then I realized, oh no, 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 I need to do one. And then I just had to do one repetition of every exercise for several weeks before I could even increase to two. (laughs) Um, but that was just, it was kind of a really interesting exercise in patience and just the gradualness and the up and down because if I overdid it if I did two or three then I would have pain and then I had to wait for a few days before I could start again or if I was having like say at the beginning of the pandemic and I felt really a bit funny and I stopped doing them and then that kind of took me back and so there's all these peaks and troughs it doesn't just go in one straight line um And so, yeah, now I'm doing more exercises and I'm expecting that that program will take probably another year. And also the ones um, she, she made small modifications and already that was like, oh, whoa, my body was like, no, no, don't like that. I had to go back to her and she realized, okay, we need to take it back a step. You couldn't move to that next one so quickly. And I just thought that was really interesting to take into other areas of my life maybe when you do something like playing the guitar and you've been doing it for so long you're used to a certain type of progress at least even though you know it's up and down and you know it's gradual but you kind of know roughly how it goes because you've been doing it for so long whereas with something like this that I'm I guess less used to less good at it's much more up and down much more gradual and I've so I've been thinking about how I can apply that to my mental health or Um, to my creative projects just generally so that's sort of what I'm thinking about at the moment I think.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the very first episode of Fret Not. You can support the podcast on Patreon where you can listen to the extended cut of my interview with Laura and join the discussion where I'll be going live to answer your questions about the topics we discussed. Join me in two weeks' time, where I'll be talking to Cuban guitarist and pedagogue René Izquierdo about how digitization is changing the face of the guitar world and how he found his calling in teaching.